this evening's talk is part two of the talk about the first uh, foundation or the first factor of enlightenment, uh, that of mindfulness. And I'd like to begin this evening's talk with a question. A question uh, that I asked towards the end of my previous Dhamma talk regarding this first establishment of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body in the body. And the question, am I looking in the right place and in the right way? for the happiness that I'm seeking. The second establishment or domain of mindfulness is mindfulness of feelings. This foundation of mindfulness is potentially a particularly illuminating aspect of our practice towards directing our natural inclination for happiness to the right place and in the right way. Every experience that comes in through the sense doors, each of the sense doors, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thought, provides some kind of specific information to the mind. And there are particular feelings that occur through the contact of the sense doors with all of the various phenomena that we experience. From the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, these feelings are very simply and clearly classified into three groups. Pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, which we could call neutral feeling. These feelings or feeling tones arise in response to either physical or mental stimuli. Attachment, emotional attachment or aversion to sensed or experience is a result that often follows along directly from these feelings. So for instance, when one experiences a pleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental contact with some object, for most people there's an almost immediate emotional attachment to the feeling or to the object or to both. When the pleasant feeling subsides, which of course it, it always does, the desire to get it back or to get another one can quickly, very quickly come up, either quite overtly or subtly. A craving for arises, with craving immediately preceded by dissatisfaction and sometimes also very quickly followed by a state of dissatisfaction. And so our peace, our pleasant abiding, our sense of well-being is disturbed. The nature of dissatisfaction is agitation, an inner restlessness, 
which we could say translates as stress, mental and physical stress. With a clear and focused mindful attention, the experience of craving itself is experienced as a degree of a kind of burning contraction, contraction in the mind and the body. And so again, stress. When we experience unpleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental contact with some object, most people almost immediately experience emotional dislike or some form of aversion, maybe fear or maybe boredom or hatred or disappointment or anger. We want to get rid of or to get away from the object or the feeling or both. And so again, our mental peace is disturbed. And so again, we're experiencing stress. There's an awful lot of stress in this life coming directly from one's relationship to pleasant and unpleasant feelings or feeling tones. When the feeling is at least to some degree neither pleasant nor unpleasant, some somewhat neutral, often the tendency is to ignore what's going on, not connecting with present moment experience, and maybe accompanied by a subtle or maybe not so subtle state of not wanting, or just not interested to see reality in that moment. I think that uh, it's safe to say that most of us are intense experience junkies. If it's intense, we're likely to pay attention, whether it's pleasant or whether it's unpleasant. If it's not intense, we often just don't notice. Or we might think, well, nothing's happening. And so again, we're craving, actually. We're actually craving something or experiencing aversion, uh, the aversion of boredom, a boredom, or both. Without intimate and careful, mindful attention to feelings, they have the potential power to disturb us emotionally, to make us suffer. An amazing thing about these feelings is that we often forget that they change. The very same object that produced pleasant feelings in our mind, sometimes just within moments, can produce unpleasant feelings in the mind. And of course, vice versa. And so, again, uh, we experience attachment, clinging, and various aversive states. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering, remembering the connection that mindfulness offers to see things just as they are. So uh, a 
personal story in regard to this or relationship to this. A number, uh, quite a number of years ago now, um, I was sitting a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And uh, in this small dining room, the small back dining room, uh, there are some shelves up along the wall. And uh, yogis uh, practicing there uh, at that retreat center um, keep their special stashes on these shelves. I had a stash on one shelf. And um, at one day uh, during that retreat, uh, there was a note from the person whose stash, on top of my stash, from the person whose stash was next to mine. And at that point, I had no idea who this person was. The note was offering me some green tea from his stash. And a very pleasant feeling came up. I was noticed. This person was offering a gift for me. <laughs> and on top of it, I like green tea. Very pleasant feeling. So I answered his note and thanked him. Then the second note appeared a day or two later, offering me a hat. <laughs> he noticed I'd been going outside without one, and it was beginning uh, to get cold outside. Well, not such a pleasant feeling arose in the mind at that point. I felt impinged upon. I, uh, the liking, there was not the liking of the attention at that point. But I answered the note politely, and I thanked him and said, I have a hat. Then, a few days later, a third note was on top of my stash, and it was a practice question, a question about practice, and a most decidedly unpleasant feeling in the mind came up. And a quick, uh, very unmindful reaction in the mind to write back uh, a not-so-polite note. <laughs> but fortunately, a wise, full, wise uh, wisdom and uh, uh, mindfulness, a wise discernment kicked in and I, I didn't write back a nasty note. <laughs> I just simply relaxed, let go, and didn't respond at all. And at that point the notes stopped. Never got any more notes. At the end of the retreat I uh, spoke with this person uh, and uh, he said he had gone through a similar process and was grateful. He said after going through uh, some inner turmoil, he was grateful that I didn't answer him that last time and was ha very happy himself not to be writing any more notes. I, as I think you would probably all agree, when you feel pleasant or unpleasant as a result of contact with some sense door object, the pleasant and unpleasant feeling isn't in the external object or within the internal object of attention, such as a bodily sensation or a thought. The feeling is in the mind. And when we really begin to recognize this, that's the beginning of the discernment of what is called the insight of nama rupa, mind-body. Very important to really recognize it 
and see it for what it is. So what is it that's so often the root of the feeling that arises in relationship to our experiences? In my uh, just just shared three-month retreat story, the feelings, the liking, uh, uh, the feelings and the liking uh, or disliking following the feeling tone, and the subsequent action uh, of answering the first two notes, followed by the aversive reaction in my mind to the third note, were all very clearly coming uh, from a place of self, of me, capital M-E. When we begin to see that all of the feelings we experience are within us, that we ourselves are really mainly responsible for the feelings that we experience. We begin to know that we really can't blame others for the way that we feel. What for many of us are habituated storylines such as he made me really angry, she made me feel terrible. He made me feel so happy. This place or these people make me feel so peaceful or so miserable with pleasant and unpleasant preceding each of those um, states of mind. As we begin to pay a careful attention to the feelings that arise the habituated storylines begin to lose their strength. They begin to fall apart, actually. In the light of really seeing things clearly, putting the blame on others for our feelings isn't realistic. It's not the way things really work. We have the possibility of letting go of the stories, the myths that we have about ourselves and others, the various beliefs that we have about ourselves, what we think we're capable of or not capable of, how we define ourselves. We have the opportunity to let go, relinquish uh, various beliefs that we have about our bodies, our mind, our emotions, beliefs that we've held onto and stuffed into the closet of our mind. And just simply pay attention to our experience, just as it is in this moment. It's so simple. It's hard to believe that that's all it takes. Though, of course, as you know, though it's so simple, it's not so easy. The potentially, potentially illuminating aspect of practice in relationship to cultivating a careful attention to feeling is that it's at this point in our experience that we have the direct, immediate opportunity to drop our habituated reactions 
of attachment, clinging, and the various permutations of aversion. It's at this point in our experiencing of noticing the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or the feeling of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that we can in moments just see, experience, and know the phenomena, know the attendant feeling tone, and that just be that. In that moment, there's no mental suffering. The heart and mind aren't disturbed. It's actually a moment of ease, a moment of peace. So another personal story experience regarding this. Giving birth for the first time almost 46 years ago was my uh, actually first formal teaching and practice in mindfulness, although uh, it wasn't called that. <laughs> the Lamaze birthing method is what it was called. <laughs> and the Lamaze birthing method was a training in being fully present, awake, and aware in the process. The birthing process that was happening in and of itself. And though I had absolutely no control over the process, I was certainly very involved with it. Throughout the training, we were told that any resistance uh, to the process that was taking place would make it extremely uncomfortable and most likely quite unpleasant which I very quickly discovered when the birthing actually began. Getting myself out of the way of it while at the same time being totally present, engaged, and aware in the midst of it was very intense. Not so easy, but actually really quite okay. And actually mostly neutral in the light of pleasant and unpleasant feelings. Selfless engagement in the birthing process allowed it to be an incredibly interesting and truly, truly an experience filled with wonderment. A really very powerful lesson that's continued to inform me again and again over the years. Feelings are particularly important mental factors in developing insight into the cause of suffering. Because these feelings are what condition our mind to hold on to the pleasant or push away, avoid, or ignore the unpleasant. Learning to mindfully observe feelings with more balance, more equanimity, and thus less attachment and aversion and identification 
is an important and very helpful door to open on our way out of suffering. So this second establishment or domain of mindfulness in our practice, contemplation of the feelings simply in themselves, the feelings in the feelings. An amazing aspect of mindfulness is that it has the capacity to connect directly and simply to the experiences that come in through the sixth sense doors, which with what we can call bare awareness. With bare awareness providing very immediate and direct access to these experiences just simply being known. And sometimes we may experience just this. But at times, and actually maybe quite often, the direct, simple knowing of phenomena is almost immediately uh, colored or modified by various mental factors or states of mind. And this being the third domain or foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the mind in Pali Chitta Nupassana. Mindfulness of the various mental factors or states of mind that arise in relationship to experience. So, for example, we go to the marketplace, the marketplace of the lunch food display here in retreat the marketplace of where to do walking meditation this particular hour, any particular hour, or the marketplace of which, which shirt to put on in the morning. Living here in Taos has provided some very excellent practice opportunities, a place uh, that many people visit specifically to come to the marketplace of the abundant forms of, of uh, human-created beauty that abound here. And I went through a period of practice here in Taos some years ago where I'd walk down the street um, looking into the shop windows and watch my mind and body. Awareness of seeing just seeing forms, colors, bare attention. And then I would notice the coloration of the mind of wanting, the coloration of the mind of leaning into, and even sometimes the strong desire of seeming need. Greed, coloring a moment's experience of seeing a very good practice in the midst of the marketplace, any marketplace. To sustain uh, and deepen in and with our practice, to see things as they are, two of the most essential qualities of heart, of mind, 
that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. For instance, if another person notices that I'm feeling and maybe expressing greed or some form of aversion, it doesn't matter if his or her image of me is shattered. What matters is that I'm willing to come face to face with these mind states. Bringing mindful attention right into the greed or fear or anger or grief. And as you know, this isn't always so easy. Tremendous interest, energy, and humility is needed to sustain the observation, to see yourself as you are. And because you see yourself as you are, without judgment, you don't try to project a different image to yourself or to anyone else. Vimila Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who has been a very profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, says this about humility. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility, to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath. I hope, she says. There's a story about His Holiness the Dalai Lama who was uh, taken window shopping, shopping in some big city to an area where there were lots of small shops that uh, sell all kinds of uh, small mechanical parts and mechanical small mechanical systems. The person who took the Dalai Lama to this part of the city knew that he was particularly interested and um, fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. The Dalai Lama said that he found himself looking in the windows of the shops, at first simply seeing with a very open curiosity and interest. And he said then all of a sudden he, he realized that he wanted everything that he wanted all of it. And he said, I didn't even know what any of it was for. I just wanted it. <laughs> Are you mindful of your mind? You might ask yourself, how driven am I by my desires? How driven am I by my aversions?
And so taking a look at the marketplace of your inner world of meditation, a moment of deep calm, a mindful moment of directly knowing this wholesome quality of calm. No thought about it, just it as it is, just tranquility, just calm. And then maybe quickly followed by the unwholesome mind state of grasping, wanting it to never leave. Directly knowing this experience too, without judgment. Mindfulness can know the mental factor or coloration in the mind of wanting, greed, within the greed itself, or the mental factor, the coloration of anger, or hatred, or fear, or delusion. Any state of mind can be known within itself, how it acts, its changing flavors, its taste in the mind, and its effect in on the body, and its momentary cessation. A moment of consciousness might be colored by the wholesome states of mind of faith or delight or colored by dullness or some form of aversion. As I'm sure you've experienced at times, each of these mental factors, these colorations might arise in relationship to bare awareness of any given experience, such as a breath, a sensation in the body, a sound, a taste, a memory, a plan, an image in the mind. In the Abhidhamma, which is a very clear and detailed treatise on the workings of the mind from the Buddhist perspective, there is a long and detailed list of the many and various wholesome and unwholesome mental factors that may quickly come along to accompany and color the bare awareness of any present moment's experience as the process of, of, dhamma, of the Dhamma and the development of concentration and mindfulness unfold and blossom. And I'd like to say just a little bit about the Abhidhamma. It's one of the uh, three baskets, one of the three divisions of the Pali Canon, which is the authoritative record of the Buddha's teaching. The first basket, uh, or collection as it's sometimes called, is the book of discipline containing all the rules of conduct for the nuns and the monks and all of the regulations regarding governing the Sangha, the community. The second collection or basket brings together all of the discourses that the Buddha gave, all the teachings, all the suttas that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. The Abhidhamma is the Buddhist analysis of mind and mental processes that combines philosophy, psychology, and ethics or virtue 
into a very unique and quite a remarkable synthesis. This third collection or basket, the Abhidhamma, is considered the Buddha's higher or special doctrine or teaching. And this basket has quite a distinctly uh, different character, different quality than the other two. Whereas it's not a record of discourses or discussions um, occurring in real life settings, as are the suttas and the uh, discussion of conduct. But it, the, rather the Abhidhamma basket is a very clear, detailed and refined uh, disclosure, we could say, in which the principles of the Buddhist teaching have been clearly and minutely defined and very carefully organized and classified. This basket, the Abhidhamma, exhibits quite an amazing and clear structure and consistency of thought, which of course isn't really at all surprising uh, as the Buddha had a most amazing mind. So looking at the colorations, discussing a little bit the colorations uh, that can come along with bare awareness at any present moment experience, or of any present moment experience, as this process of the Dhamma and the development of concentration and mindfulness unfold and blossom. So for instance, mindfulness knowing the wholesome mind states of calm, joy, delight, tranquility, faith, appreciation, peacefulness, equanimity, and the unwholesome mind states of judgment, disappointment, clinging, attachment, fear, anger, hatred, or irritation in relationship to the bare awareness of experiences of seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling consciousness, tasting, touching consciousness, and thinking or mind consciousness. And again, a reminder, the essential nature of mindfulness is that there's no attitude of judging or discriminating in mindfulness itself between right or wrong, good or bad. It's just this in this moment, whatever it is, however it is. Within mindfulness itself, there's no grasping, no rejecting, and no manipulation of experience. So this third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, mindful awareness of mental factors, states of mind, seeing and knowing the colorations of consciousness, 
in themselves. The last aspect of mindfulness that the Buddha points us to is called mindfulness or contemplation of dhammas. Dhamma in this case can be translated as the truth or the way of things or natural laws, the natural laws. This domain of mindful awareness can be grounded specifically in any, any of the six sense doors. Hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, seeing, thinking. This fourth establishment of mindful awareness, this contemplation of, of dhammas, may, can also be grounded in the five hindrances. Sleepiness, restlessness or agitation, doubt, the grasping, or the aversive mind. The particular and wonderful specialty, we could say, uh, about this fourth domain of mindfulness is that it, that it sees any of these experiences through the doors of Dhamma, through the doors of the way of things, through the doors of the truth, the nature of things. Whatever experience is, in the physical or mental realm, this fourth domain of mindfulness sees and knows experience through the doors of the truth. So for instance, just speaking briefly this evening uh, about just one of the very important and insightful doors that we can walk through in this fourth domain of mindfulness. And this is the doorway of the three universal characteristics that all experiences of body and mind are imbued with. In this fourth domain of mindfulness, we can directly, experientially pay attention to and recognize that every experience of mind and body is always changing is impermanent. Each and every phenomena of body and mind, as well as everything around us, begins and ends, arises and disappears. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, deaths, moment to moment to moment, breath by breath. As practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this perfectly natural phenomena. What appears to be a very steady flow of experience, even with the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion, the delusion being as though it's happening with an ongoing continuous flow. 
when in reality it's all beginning and ending, arising and passing away on the most minute level, second by second by second. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. Bhikkhus or yogis, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Listen to that. And what yogis is the way that is suitable to attaining Nibbana? Here a yogi sees the eye as impermanent, sees forms as impermanent, sees eye contact as impermanent, sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. She or he sees the ear as impermanent, sees the mind, mental phenomena, as impermanent, sees mind or thought consciousness, mind consciousness, as impermanent, and sees mind contact with whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or unpleasant, as impermanent. This yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Every experience is anicca, impermanent, which is the first universal characteristic that all mental and physical phenomena is imbued with. And because of anicca, no experience that comes in through the six sense doors is ultimately or permanently satisfying. And so, many, many of us continue on through our lifetime searching for something, some experience that will finally satisfy, finally make us happy. This unsatisfactoriness and the endless search is what the Buddha called dukkha and is the second universal characteristic. The last of the three characteristics that we may come to know within this fourth domain of mindfulness is anatta the truth that all experience, all phenomena, is selfless. All phenomena, all experience, arises totally dependent on many conditions that have occurred over time and that come together in that moment of arising. All phenomena, all experience, is totally interdependent and contingent in its existence and is constantly changing, both within its own seeming solidity as well as in its seeming set or static place in this world. All is anatta. All is empty of any separate, solid, static, selfness. As we begin to directly experience and to know anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, 
unsatisfactoriness. The third universal characteristic of anatta, or no-self, begins to reveal itself directly through our practice of mindful awareness. The no-self characteristic, or what is sometimes referred to as the emptiness of all experience, the emptiness of all phenomena, shows up really quite naturally and often in unexpected and subtle ways. And so we begin to truly understand that no matter how hard we try, there is absolutely nothing that can be clung to. Our relationship to life begins to change. We start to actually relax much more deeply into just simply and more and more clearly being here with things just as they are. In a conversation with one of his students, the Buddha offers uh, uh, an important and clear teaching about anicca, anatta, and liberation. He says this, Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megiya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. As we go along in our practice, and when we're ready, this fourth domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas, opens up the beautiful door to freedom, the simple and beautiful door to liberation, which we may experience just momentarily, just briefly at times, with it eventually becoming more and more pervasive through our life. From this perspective, we could say that every single experience, every single phenomena holds the Dhamma, holds the truth. The Dhamma, the true nature of things, the way of things is within everything. Simply here to be seen, to be known. If we just take the time to experience our experience intimately and directly, if we just take the time to look carefully, the truth is right here for us to see directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body, mind, and heart and within each and all phenomena that is happening everywhere around us. In some Buddhist schools this is spoken of as within samsara is nirvana or nibbana. Within the whirl, whirlpool 
of our ordinary lives within the whirlpool of samsara, if we stand still, cool, calm, focused, mindfully attentive, in that moment we're no longer conditioned by ignorance, meaning by ignoring, and by being caught in the whirlpool of pleasant and unpleasant, caught in the whirlpool of I like it or I don't like it. No longer caught, unaware, in the whirl of continually, unwittingly, moving around and around and around the wheel. In the midst of samsara, if we can stop and pay an extraordinary kind of attention, a focused, mindful attention, we have the potential of waking up. Mindfulness is the tool, the medicine for our awakening. And as it was so graphically talked about during the time of the Buddha, if we take the medicine and purify the sickness and heal ourselves, and as this process unfolds and begins to blossom, we experience moments of freedom. We have the possibility to live the deepest ease of well-being, the deepest wisdom and compassion, to be truly awake, free, truly healed in this very lifetime. We have the possibility of wandering into the natural state of the equipoise of an undisturbed mind, an undisturbed heart, the world outside going on just as it is, thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going, no different than anything else in the world, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to. One of my Burmese teachers, Saida Upandita, speaks about the fact that essentially there's just one Dhamma that we need to practice which is maybe a great relief to those who think that they have to practice many, many things, have to practice many dhammas to be liberated. In Pali, the word for this dhamma is apamada, which is sometimes translated as vigilance, and which can be understood, um, as it's elaborated in the commentaries to the suttas, as a concentrated, a focused mindfulness. So from this perspective, mindfulness is the one Dhamma that we need to practice. Some words from the Buddha in uh, his speaking about mindfulness as a factor of enlightenment. If the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is present in oneself, a yogi knows that it is present. If the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is absent, 
a yogi knows that it is absent in herself or himself. And one knows how the unarisen factor of mindfulness comes to arise and knows how the development of the factor of mindfulness comes about. Rooted in careful attention. Careful attention is declared to be the chief. Accomplished in careful attention. With a mind that has developed the enlightenment factor of mindfulness and discernment, one penetrates and sunders the mass of greed that one has never penetrated and sundered, the mass of hatred that one has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of delusion that one has never before penetrated and sundered. Monks, yogis, just as the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too, when a yogi or a monk develops and cultivates mindfulness and discernment and all of the other factors of enlightenment, he, she, slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. I'd like to uh, close this evening's talk with a short poem from Rumi. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust moat. Lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on. Upside down. And let's sit for just a few moments. 